We've just run out of time. We've been talking with Charlie Toledo, the executive director of the Susquehanna Intertribal Council. So this, now this is the introduction. We finished the show, Charlie, but this, okay. now we're doing the introduction to the show. So it's a little good, yeah. reverse. But there was a question that I did not get to ask you. And you've been very honest and forthcoming and not afraid to share some, some personal things here today, which I appreciate. And I know the listening audience appreciates. I don't usually get texts in the middle of a show, but I did today because people are so intrigued by you. But I'm going to ask you this question, and I hope you'll answer honestly. And... And yes or no, it doesn't matter. Like, okay. I'm. Uh, we just want to. We just want to know. No. We just want to know. <laughs> That's all. We just want to know. So I hope it's not too personal, but because um, you are somebody of, uh, you know, your stature in the community and um, renown and culture, it, it's it's. I know it's on some people's minds. So if you don't mind answering, Charlie and Toledo, do you do you? Like chocolate? Yes. Do, well, do you go nuts for donuts? I do like donuts. Yeah, that is very personal because I get in trouble for that. Okay, well, we do have. As long to as have... they're chocolate. Well, have a look here. We have a nice kept, little selection. Like, building up. I'm like, say it. We have Damn a nice it. selection. You know, I only get to take box. one. I thought the whole box was for me well, to I'll take back to the office. I, if I'll I can, just... if I, we got to give IRSC Sports oh, okay. one. And uh, I got a buddy visiting uh, from Chicago who's a donut fan, so I want to give him one. Okay. But other than that, you can take as many as you want. But, no, I'm but just kidding. But for right now, I'm which one is which one is uh, speaking to you? I'm going to hand that to you there, Cross. There's no chocolate one. So well, there's, there's chocolate donuts glaze. with chocolate on it. So okay, we got the classic. That's what I was saying. As long as it's chocolate. Classic raised uh, chocolate donut. I hope it's delicious. I'm not going to ask you any silly follow-up questions that I do sometimes. You can just enjoy that as our uh, gift to you and token of our thanks for being here today. Well, you're <laughs> welcome. Thank you so much. I kept trying not to laugh because that buildup. I was like, just say it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for playing along. We appreciate it. For you listening, if you would like to find out a little bit about Charlie while you listen to this podcast episode, go to the website for her organization, the Suskel Intertribal Council, which is suscalcouncil.org, S-U-S-C-O-L, council.org. And YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. And a YouTube, that's right. We talked about that uh, during the show. So there's uh, there are videos out there as well. Before we get to the show, I know Lauren Mole has a thing or two he'd like to say. We invite you to join Judd at his family's winery at the South End of Silverado Trail. Judd's Hill Winery, located at 2332 Silverado Trail, here in Napa Valley, California, USA. Visiting information is at juddshill.com, or you can call 707-255-2332. That's exactly right. We love having people come in. Whether you're one of our Napa neighbors or visiting from somewhere else, come say hello and see why we have been for quite some time the number one thing to do in Napa Valley per TripAdvisor. It's all about the good wine. It's about the great hospitality experience you'll receive with big thanks to uh, Charlie's own daughter who manages our tasting room. We, we, we got to put that out for full disclosure. Rosa Noble. <laughs> That's right. Get her name in. Give her the plug. We'd love to see you while you are online. You can um, check out some of our fun videos. Definitely look at our events page. There's always something going on either at the winery or somewhere Around the globe, we, we get all over town. And you can put some wine in your cart. We have all sorts of delicious varieties, small production lots. And Lauren, let's let's do something special for them for listening in. What do you think? Just type in coupon code JNVS, all lowercase letters, please, no capitals, and you'll get 15% off your entire wine order. And if that's not enough, 
You can join the Judd's Hill Wine Club anytime, day or night. That's also exactly right. Join the wine club, get specials on the wine, on shipping, get access to all these uh, small production wines, uh, get invitations to events and parties, and lots of fun to be had. We could go on and on, but we've got a show to get to, so what do you say, shall we? And now, enjoy the show. <laughs> Judd's Napa Valley Show. Every episode, a veritable cornucopia of finkel fun. Get ready for another heap full of fascinating things to know from witty and intriguing people on Judd's Napa Valley Show. No stale script and no rehearsing, live from a Napa studio. You may be that intriguing person on Judd's Napa Valley Show. On Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa, Judd's Napa Valley, Judd's Napa Valley Show. A smart person knows what to say. A wise person knows whether to say it or not. And now, live from Wine Down Media Studios at South Napa Century Center, it's Judd's Napa Valley Show. I'm Lauren Mole, and here's your host, Judd Fingelstein. Good morning, Mr. Lauren Mole, and I've always known you to be a wise guy, so thank you very much for the reminder of what it takes to be one. Uh, how are you? What's happening? What's the latest? What can we expect in the stellar... Aura of Lauren Mole. Well, Judd, we just had a wonderful time performing yesterday with Cindy Skinner and the Napa Valley Voices for the veterans at the... Oh, at, good, yes. For the veterans, at both at the Springs and at the Villas Retirement Homes. Fantastic. Thank you for doing that. It was a wonderful experience. Did you have any featured solos? Sometimes you get like a little bass uh, no. thing in there. No solos this no. time. Any highlights of the day? Maybe some of the reactions from some of the folks? Uh, when, when we performed uh, the five uh, military fight songs... Most of the residents of, of the Springs and the Villas actually stood up when uh, they yeah. heard their fight song. That's got to make you feel good, doesn't it? It does. You're reaching them. Great, man. Anything upcoming that folks should know about? Operation With Love From Home is doing a, a sorting event uh, at Napa Valley College at uh, 10 a.m. on uh, December uh, 9th, I believe it is, or December 8th, sorry. So make sure to show up at 9.30. The whole event starts at 10. Okay, and I'm sure folks can get more information looking up... Operation with love from home.org. There you go. It's a terrific organization. I'm honored to be part of it. Yes, I've been down there too on the uh, assembly line putting uh, these packages together. Feels good, doesn't it? Feels really good. Good. Any singing? Are you appearing at any major league sporting events coming up? Uh, not at the moment, but I'll let you know when. Okay, thanks. We may be doing the Warriors again for the first time at uh, Chase Center. Oh, that'd but, be exciting. Uh, I'll keep you posted. Please do. So, Please uh, do. So what's been going on with you, John? Oh, you know, harvest is wrapped up here. That's kind of exciting. It's beautiful in Napa Valley, as always. But right now, with the uh, colors changing in the vineyards, it's just gorgeous. A lot of great photo opportunities. I've been enjoying going on walks and taking some pictures here and there. Our, ooh, this is fun. This is fun. Our annual... Hanukkah Hootenanny at Judd's Hill is coming up Sunday, December 8th from noon to 2.30 p.m. And this is, this is it. This is probably our most popular party of the year. And it's a great chance for our wine club members to come pick up their new releases. If you're not a wine club member, well, become one. You can do that at juddshill.com and also by coming in to see us, which we'd love to see you. And it's complimentary to attend if you are a wine club member, but there's all kinds of good stuff going on. Details are on the events page of judshill.com, and it all benefits Napa CHI, which is the uh, community health initiative, which ensures that all 
not some, not just a part. Not just children. Not just children. Everyone in our local Napa County community has access to health insurance and health care, which, you know, as I say, a healthy community is just that, a healthy community. So we love supporting them. And you can find out more about that organization uh, by going to NapaCHI.org. That's coming up. And, you know, that's all I'm going to plug at the moment. Okay. Because we've got a guest here who has... So much to say, and I'm so fascinated. Looking forward to meeting her and talking. So let's let's introduce her, shall we? Hey, good morning. You, oh, good morning. Getting He's getting, that's okay. <laughs> no, that's good. I love the enthusiasm. Jump right in. Go for it, Lauren. Today, Judd's donning tuxedo and proud to abide by this credo. With this broadcast edition, we'll honor tradition with our guest, She's Charlie Toledo. It is. <laughs> Wouldn't want to pass Hi, that Charlie. introduction up. Hi, Lauren. <laughs> no, Charlie Toledo, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. I hope hope you're not embarrassed that I put the tuxedo on in your in your honor. I was, no, it looks I was great. Very excited. Yeah, same here. <laughs> you both look great. Oh, <laughs> thanks. thanks. This new station is so glamorous. I feel like I'm at a TV station, it's, not a radio it's beautiful. station, because it's visually very stunning. They have done a very nice job. It's it's gorgeous. I hope well, folks... It is. Instead, we got people fixing computers. Computers next to us. Well, that's okay. Next and, door. And uh, they, they are hoping to turn this into a bit of a community center itself, so they wanted it to look nice and have that's people drop beautiful. in. Charlie Toledo, you are the executive director of the Suskel Intertribal Council, yes. and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about yeah, you, great. your background. You're somebody who I have known about for many years. You know, I've, I, I read about you. I've seen you speak at different events. But only recently had the pleasure to meet you, and it wasn't really to talk about any of anything we're going to talk about today. You, right. you kind of came by the winery, and you sat down. You had some relatives, and there was a little wine tasting. Like, oh, that's that's the famous Charlie Toledo, and she's sitting here drinking our wine. I was so excited. Oh, that's sweet. And should we do full disclosure? Maybe why? What prompted you to come visit? Yeah, should we? let's do full full, full disclosure. Full your, disclosure. Your 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 wonderful uh, daughter. My firstborn. Your firstborn, Rosa, is the tasting room uh, manager, director, I like that term, at Judd's Hill. So we're happy to have her in the family and, uh, by extension, you in the family. Yes, we're happy to be part of it. Well, thank you. But this is our first chance to really converse, and I'm I'm really excited. Well, let's let's get to this. We read, uh, as I said, we read about you and the Suskel Intertribal Council in the paper often with all kinds of either issues that are happening where you... uh, want to weigh in with opinion or yes, with some of the events that you put together, such as the, the powwow uh, that happens annually, the, all kinds of things going on. So I thought yeah. maybe let's just, let's back it up a little and maybe talk about where, where you come from. You, you're originally from New Mexico. New Mexico. I was born in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. We have some of the oldest DNA in North America based in Albuquerque through my uh, parents, my sister, did the DNA test, and she was a history teacher at elementary school. So when she retired, she spent the last 10 years getting all the details on our family lineage. Really? Oh, wow. So We knew we, were, we went back to the 1300s on our Euro side, you know, because um, family was fleeing Western Europe during the Inquisition. Oh, really? And that's really? when a lot of Basque people, in fact, my, my last name, Toledo, people think of that as a Spanish name, but mm-hmm. it's actually Basque. It's from the Basque region. Yeah, it's the oh. oldest. It was pre-European, so it was before that region was called Spain. Oh. And unfortunately, during the Inquisition, um, a lot of my uh, ancestors were fleeing that, and 
they came to New Mexico. And then they were, didn't have any intention of going back there, so no. they intermarried with the indigenous people. The mm-hmm. Towa is the one tribe that uh, I'm descended from on my father's side. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, you've got a long history in these parts. Long. Um, long, long history. Um, and you, what, I mean, I guess the question is, like, what, what put you on this path to be involved, to be such a community leader to to care so deeply that you throw yourself in. I, I heard an interview, or maybe it was actually a, you were speaking to a group, and within that speech, it, it struck me. You said that you um, you dedicated your life to peacemaking at the age of about 15 or 16. So right. what, where did that inspiration come from? It, it's very admirable, but... How did you reach that decision? I know now that I'm old, you can see how long it is. But, you know, at the time, I don't think anybody decides to be a community leader, but you find yourself in that position. And I'm one of the oldest siblings in a large sibling group. Mm. So at the, I was the fourth born, but I had six younger siblings. So at the age of three, I was already caretaking for other people. Oh, wow. And my younger siblings, I had a brother 15 months younger than me that I still take care of to this day. But no, he's actually independent. (laughs) But um, I was going to Catholic school because most indigenous people are some form of Christian because that's how we survived. You know, mm. if we didn't uh, adopt that religion, we were killed. We'll talk about so, the Inquisition. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, the Inquisition that, that came, followed us here. Yeah. That's a longer story. I could talk a long time yeah. about that. But we were studying, you know, it was the Vietnam War, and at that time there was a draft, and in my age group uh, did not have the right to vote till 21. So 18-year-olds, if they weren't in college or married, they had to go, they got drafted mm. a day after their birthday at the age of 18. So uh, some of the nuns at the Catholic school I was at down in Orange County, they were wanting us to be uh, critical thinkers. So they were kind of, St. Saint Joseph's of Orange are kind of like the Jesuits of the feminine side of the Catholic okay. Church. So they, they are very intellectual. They want you to come to your faith by um, intellect rather than faith. So we were exploring a lot of, you know, really famous uh, philosophers and and then understanding about the military-industrial complex. I was studying that my junior year in high school and kept writing papers about it. And when I came to understand what that was, I realized I am never going to be a part of that. Mm. I'm never going to be a part of killing people around the world uh, for the benefit of, you know, economic whatever it is. I think it's a little bit of a mental illness, but um, so so that's when I committed myself. And at that time, in the high school, which was really uh, unpopular, uh, some of the my peers started saying they weren't going to sign up for the draft when they graduated from high school. And of course, most of us were college oriented, so that would have been a deferment. But they were still objecting that everybody else that didn't have the option of college uh, or uh, marriage or, or wealth in the family that would keep you out of the draft that that was. So I became a draft counselor actually in high school. I I started. Uh, there was a peace and freedom movement, and we signed up and started working. I never stopped actually. Been been dedicated to peace of. Ever since? Okay. Yeah, now we call it human rights. We call it uh, social justice, you know, because peace, people say peace, and I could see that, I think that speech you were at when I said that to a youth group, you know, saying, mm-hmm. I was your age when I began this path towards peacemaking. But peacemaking now is kind of like, what does that mean? It's such a lukewarm word. So the words used in the at the United Nations are human rights. Um, social justice, access, equity. Those are the words we see used And we're going to, hopefully within this time frame, get through many... 
many of the points that's basically the proofs in the pudding. Like you actually, yeah. you know, walk the walk. You don't right. just talk yeah, the talk. Yeah, I've been the front We're, lines. I'm really in the trenches. I've you, been in, in war zones and um, domestic war zones. You know, I put myself in front of uh, women before news was formed back in the 70s. Women didn't have a place to go if they were being abused by their husbands or partners. And we, we were in the front lines there, too. And, and that was actually the most dangerous place to be. But I've gone as a delegate, actually, from the United States government, which is pretty ironic, given my lifestyle. But we went into Afghanistan a week after the United States invaded. And oh, okay, I was going to get to let's, okay. let's Let's go right to that, because I've, it, it, we're going to jump around. I can already tell. Let's and that's jump fine. around, yeah. That's fine. I'm, I'm, if you're okay with that, I'm, I'm okay good. with that. That's how but I since live. you brought it up, uh, you were part of a women's delegation of... To Afghanistan that helped um, women there rebuild through their constitution. Yeah, yeah they were and self determination. Yeah, self determination. You know. Wow. So ten days in Afghanistan, not not all that. No support in the ground. Long yeah. after things. It was very were unstable. Happening. Yeah. Let's. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna wave at you, which means please. Oh, go ahead. Talk, I can because I start talking, and then it's hard to stop. That's why I said, "Give me the sign that says stop." Okay, but I'm fascinated. How? And, and so we had gone. We had the opportunity to go to East Africa. We actually had the opportunity to go any place in Africa. The Women's Intercultural Network, which is an organization I've been chair of off and on for since 1996, we helped establish the U.S. African policy, and as a result of that, because we led the nation in developing that policy in the Bay Area. And so the State Department said, where would you like to go in Africa? Kind of as a reward. We got this huge contract to go there. And and so my uh, director, the CEO said, well, if you have the opportunity to go anyplace in Africa, where would you go? And I said, Uganda. And she said, that's what everybody's saying. That's going to be my test question of who's the delegation. And she said, why? I said, because every place I've traveled in the world, anytime I'm in human rights, the People that impress me the most are the Ugandan women. They're so brave. They've gone through these huge dictatorships, and they never ran. They just stayed and worked. So after that delegation, and we were there, I think, 10 days again, eight of us went, uh, they had developed a constitution after Idi Amin, the men, the women, and the children, and they had created a democracy, one person, one vote, a true democracy. And in their constitution, they put that every office from the top to the bottom to the street to the city levels had to have a gender balance. Oh. 40% of every office, every governing body had to have 40% women, 20% youth, and then 40% men. And the youth, they weren't youth representatives, they were youth between the ages of 16 and 25. So we were so impressed by that constitution, we were doing a lot of presentations when we came back to the Bay Area, and there was some Afghan uh, refugees or immigrants mm-hmm. in the audience, and they said, could you please come to Afghanistan and help us? So we translated that Ugandan, or had it, we didn't, I didn't do it, of course, <laughs> somebody did. We had it uh, translated into Farsi, mm-hmm. and we carried that with us, and to the Lajurga, which is the citizens reforming their constitution, and they did put that into their constitution to guarantee human rights for women and children. Amazing. Uh, what what was the experience like being there at that time? You met with the president, the yeah, king, the, the king, people everybody. on the ground. Yeah, we met but with the security. Must have been the security was very very intense. You know, I always thought um, actually going to East Africa and Afghanistan. I always thought, well, I'll take a little bit of cyanide or something in my jewelry. So if we get in a situation where we're going to be captured, I'll just eat it. Oh, I, I just never want to be tortured. Did and you I do was, that? No, I oh. didn't do that, and I was glad I didn't because two times I would have maybe thought, oh, this is the time I would do. really because we were being stopped and 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 then it didn't it wasn't as dangerous you know it was a stop and we were searched and had to get out of the car and you know 
we were around guns uh, in both of those countries, which are very unstable. Uh, we were in a delegation that was armed. You know, we ourselves weren't armed, but our drivers, we oh, had uh, Jeeps in front of us and behind us that people with machine guns. And I think in, in Uganda, whenever we'd get out, they would fan out around us with their guns pointed out. And one of the delegates had said, what are those guys doing? I said, well, it's a deterrent. And she said, what do you mean a deterrent? I said, well, you know, you know they guys with machine guns facing around, out around you. That's going to deter people from coming towards us uninvited. I, she, I wouldn't approach you. Right. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't. No, most people wouldn't approach me either way because I still have that persona. But she said, well, you mean if somebody came running at us that they would shoot? And I said, I think that's the idea. And, and so... But we never did get into any gunfighter. In, in Afghanistan... Um, we had our drivers were armed. I know when we were going through road checks, they were saying, is anybody armed? And they would put flashlights in our face and, do you have a gun? Do you have a gun? And we'd have to say, no, I don't have a gun. And then when we were leaving this one roadblock, I said, like they believed us. And the driver just started laughing and laughing because, of course, they they were armed. Yeah. And then one of my friends who was on that delegation, she was our filmmaker because we did videotape a lot of those trips. She said, I said something about, well, like how we were, I don't think... Uh, our guards were as armed as they were in, you know, in Afghanistan as they were in Uganda. Mm. And this co-delegate had been with us on both trips. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, they were armed, right? And she said, well, no, no, they weren't armed. She goes, why would you be saying that? And I was sharing a room with a bodyguard of one of our, and I won't name their names because that's whatever for them, but we were in East Africa and I was sharing a room there and she was packing her suitcase. She was ironing her, her person's, her senator's uh, outfit for the day and I saw a gun in her suitcase I said oh so are you guys are you armed and she said oh we all are oh wow and then even her her senator was armed and she said she's always armed because people are always trying to kill her I I, I guess I look we we what's a good way to put this um we live around that here it's not as uh, obvious I guess I mean people have guns but but there to, to, to just, it's almost like a necessity. Like you have to, it's, to ensure or you your... have to have the feeling of it. You know, people always say, how can you go into those situations unarmed? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, the person with the gun is always the first one shot. Well, that's who they're going to so take it's actually out. more dangerous. And, and in the United States that people are armed, you know, most, most in this Valley, there's a lot of armed people. When yeah. I moved here in 1972, that was the big adjustment for me coming from an urban area of Orange County because my family did a voluntary migration from New Mexico to Southern California in 1958. Mm. And then I did a voluntary migration to Napa Valley, in, or somewhat voluntary, 1972. But all of the trucks, all the ranchers had rifles yeah, in Yeah, that's not cars. uncommon. And now they still little bit do. A little bit just, different circumstance, I think. But uh, Depends on I, who you I, are. I get that. That is very true. All right, you brought up something, a somewhat voluntary migration to Napa Valley. So oftentimes, if I know my guest didn't grow up here, I'm curious, like, what, what, brings, what brings people to Napa Valley? And I happen to be reading an article about you from 2002, and it, it stated something which I will take as fact, but there was absolutely no explanation, no follow-up. I was completely intrigued, and I did ask you permission ahead of time yes. to see if we could follow yeah, up on sure. this. So here we go. This article said <laughs> that you came to Napa Valley as a way to avoid the FBI. 
correct. Okay. And, and I, I thought that there would be more kickback, and it's taken this long for anybody to ask me about it in any kind of public setting. It's only um, 17 years later since that yeah. one article was published. Here we go, folks. So it was uh, one one of my clients said, you know, my husband said asked about that. And I said, do you want to know? And she goes, no, I don't. But again, you know, as a pacifist, so pacifist yes. means that you're not just sitting passively around, but you're actively working towards uh, equity and social mm-hmm. justice. So uh, going as a draft counselor in Orange County in 1968-69, that was against the law, what we were doing. And uh, it was against the law. It was a felony offense to not sign up for the draft the day of your birthday. Oh, I see. So the FBI would be at your door, at any young man's door, if two days after their birthday they were not registered for the draft, they would be knocking on the door and with a search warrant, and that means if the person was there, they would be taken down to the draft board to register. If they refused to register, they were arrested. And that was my reality in high school. I was 18 years old. That's the reality my brothers and my peers uh, were all facing. So we were actively working against that, and part of what we did in that period, I went to college and met uh, one of my first boyfriends there, and he was he decided to start objecting to the draft. Mm. He, he had signed up, but then when it was time to do something, he sent his draft card back. And so then we, we, we were already draft counselors, so we started what they called monkey wrenching, doing little things that were legal to avoid uh, being drafted. Oh. And that's what we counseled people to do. So but, you were counseling them, here's what you can do that's within the law, but to law. avoid... Yet that was somehow got you on the radar, or, or well, doing that well, the was thing against that the was, law. Well, no, that I don't think the counseling was against the law. And they were lawyers from Los Angeles that had trained us. We were working, oh, oh. you know, because we were 18, seven, right. 16, 17, kids. so kids. And then back then we were way more innocent than kids are now. We didn't have social media, you know. We watched TV. Yeah. I didn't really go unescorted any place till after I was nineteen. Oh. Growing up in a big Catholic family as a female, I never left the house alone. Oh. So. Um, you know, to then be looked at, looked, looked for by the FBI is a big transition. That didn't happen right away. You okay. know, what happened is we started s- setting up safe houses. Oh, Part really? of the way to Monkey Wrench was to move, yeah. change your address. And Orange County was the most conservative draft uh, active county in California. Mm-hmm. At that point, San Francisco had become a sanctuary city in 1968, I think, 69. And so people were coming up to San Francisco, or San Luis Obispo was actually a very, or for some reason, one of the more liberal. They didn't get real on top of you like the day of your birthday. And they didn't arrest you. They would just send you notices and stuff. So what people did is they had friendly houses where they could pretend they had moved to Move, change their address hmm. to there. And that changing of address and moving around was part of the way to delay um, getting drafted. And what we were all doing, of course, were hundreds, thousands of us in the streets protesting and trying to end the draft, trying to get the right to vote, all of those things. And so um, we started setting up safe houses. I moved to San Francisco, I think, in 1970. I quit college, and we had a bunch of friends living in the city and a bunch of our our draft eligible with the younger people after us, the generation after us, that were like 17 and 16. And then as they were turning 18, they were coming up to San Francisco. And we had what were called safe houses. And that's when we started having the FBI banging on our door. Okay, so now now we sort of know the story. You weren't knocking over the new Hibernia Bank to fund no, some right. radical... Okay, you were working Actually, within the law, it sounds like. Working sort of within the law. Sort of within the but law. But people were getting arrested. 
okay. More issues for another time because I want I want to get back to you, but I I had to follow up with that question. Mm-hmm. You can't just no, I always thought like no I said follow up. I always thought it was funny that nobody ever asked me about it till today. Well, today's the day. How do you like that? And then I was mentioning that uh, a youth group from Vintage High School, their senior project, they had to focus on an NGO, which was Saskal Intertribal Council. I was honored to have them choose us. And the little video clip they put together that came up, I said, you know, I never imagined being involved with as a Native American when I came back into my culture when I moved here to Napa, mm-hmm. uh, that it would be so dangerous and that we'd have to deal with the, the CIA and the FBI and the KGB and all those other people out there, wow. um, the Taliban, um, lots of groups. It makes me sound like I need my meds, but, you know, it's a reality. If In the framework of my life, it fits in. Um, so these kids actually backed up what I was saying. They backed it up with little video clips. And so when I was saying how dangerous it was, they were showing young Native Americans today being harassed mm. and arrested for just being Native. Uh, they showed s- clips from uh, Standing Rock. Mm-hmm. The, this It was actually two years ago yesterday that they were being waterboarded, you know, oh. trying to block the pipelines going through their territory. Is this video out there that people it's out can there. It's on YouTube, Susco Intertribal YouTube. So it's on the, it's on your channel. It's, it's on our channel. And, okay. and that's one of our projects that we have been trying and trying to get up and now we have our new office assistant as video experience. Uh, so hopefully we're going to get that way more active because we've got a video library about videos that because we videotape pretty much everything we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now it seems like the young people now, the 17, 18, 16, they're really interested in our work, whereas my age group has not been interested in my life's work. I'm a, I'm a minority in really? my peer. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, hopefully the the interest of the youth will spur multi-generations. we got to take a little break. I'm sorry. we got to okay. take a break here. We're talking with Charlie Toledo, the executive director of the Suskal Intertribal Council. And we'll be back in just a moment because now in the second half, I want to talk about what the council does and and uh, your involvement in that and what's happening here in the community. You're listening to Judd's Napa Valley Show. We'll be right back after these messages. Everyone's a Finkel friend on Judd's Napa Valley Show. Want to hear this episode again as well as past episodes? Subscribe to our podcast. Search for Judd's Napa Valley Show on the iTunes Store. Now, back to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Lauren Mole. Appreciate that. We are speaking with Charlie Toledo. She's the executive director of the Suskal Intertribal Council, which is dedicated to unity of all life and preservation of Native American traditions. And we're going to talk about that in this segment. But first, it looks like you brought something that you might want to uh, give away. I did. Well, you know, I thought I always, you know, fortunate. I'm very fortunate. People give me things a lot and they're not always things I want or have room for. So somebody had just given me a bag and I had said years ago, you can never have too many bags, which is true to a a point, but somebody just gave me my wife as well, gave me this bag and in in fear of being a bag lady, I wanted to bring (laughs) this bag. It's a, it's a use, but it's got a Hawaiian pattern from Cabo San Lucas with some French lavender. Yeah. I thought it was Hawaiian and then it has a Mexican But it has Cabo, yeah. Yeah. So they're mixed, but you know, Southern parts of Mexico are very tropical. Very tropical. And then you pulled out, there was a vial of something. Of eco French lavender 
hand sanitizer. Oh, that's good. And then to stay in the theme, I was going to put a bunch of like old newsletters and stuff, but you can get those when you come to our office. They're just some yeah. used bookstore uh, bookmarkers. One of Geronimo and Chief Joseph with a little bio. Oh, it has bio. a photo and bio on them. Oh, nice. Just little small. And Great. you can tell I've used them. So okay. that's my gift. Well- if any listener would like this uh, stylish uh, Cabo San Lucas tote bag, red, uh, stylish red with a white floral print, uh, some lavender hand sani, and some bookmarks with Geronimo and Chief Joseph's photos and bios, be the first to tweet. Uh, you got to use Twitter on this one. Uh, tweet, uh, what is it again? Oh, yes. It's, um, we, we still haven't come up with a name for this. So let's just say, I want the tote bag. Let's just, just write that. I want the tote bag. Just for right now. And hashtag JNVS for Judd's Napa Valley Show and put at Judd's Hill as one word. Then I'll see it immediately. I'll bring that back to the tasting room at Judd's Hill where it will be until Friday, because if you don't pick it up by then, I might keep it. I like it. And when you pop into the tasting room at Judd's Hill, you can say hello to uh, Charlie's fabulous daughter, Rosa, who manages the place. Um, We'll look forward to that. She manages me, too, a little bit. Oh, she does? Okay. Well, well, she's a good person, I think. She's very honest. I've received a text during the break with a very important question, and I think it'll become even more pertinent as you talk about the work that the Tribal Council does. But the question is, how can an ordinary person support her efforts? Her meaning you, Charlie. Yes. So you can mention that, and then folks can start supporting immediately while we talk. Yeah. No, that would be great. So suscocouncil.org is our website, and you could make donations. But our website's very extensive, and it talks about all the contracts and the work that we do. A short bio of me and our local board. We have a history of the local tribes of this region so you can inform yourself. Our basic intention is to educate public about the indigenous population of this region, uh, what happened to them, where they are now. Um, We just finished uh, three cohorts, a five threes workshop funded by Mental Health Services, Napa County, which is a pilot program for the state of California, uh, exploring the true history, accurate history of what happened to the native population in Napa Valley Mm. and, and where we still are now because when I moved here that was my one of the when I first moved here of course we were helping take apart the vineyards or the forests and stuff for vineyards we would come across grinding bowls and beads and we knew that a lot of people had human remains and they didn't want to report it to Sonoma State um, and that I had just moved here and I was 21 years old so that was still pretty young even though I thought I was old but I kept asking the question where are these Indian people where did they go yeah people would say oh to the north I said the north where it begs the question. And I'd say the North where. So I continued to ask that question until I found the tribes. Mm. It, was, it was probably about 1982. I started having contact with tribes in the region. And tribes, uh, families from that were from Napa, Napa Valley. And um, that's... Kind of dispersed throughout Northern California forcefully coast. Forcefully relocated yeah, okay. on bloody runs. Yeah. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. Okay. And see, those are things you don't know. Yeah. And that's, that's what... Um, the county had been asking us, they've been trying to focus on unserved or underserved communities. So Napa's been, you know, lobbying for money for about 20 years. And about 10 years ago, we got prevention and early intervention. And then I was approached by Bill Carter, who was the head of mental health service at the time. He said, what kind of project could you think of to create that would help stabilize the mental health issues for Native people? And I said, the truth. Mm. The truth would help stabilize yeah. us. And so I put together a program that was approved through the state, MHA, Mental Health Services. And we've just finished, it's 18, it was, 
think it was 18 months, got extended to three years, but we created a five-part series of what happened in here in Napa to the current day, to, to today. And so that, it was a really important project. And I think our biggest push always, because you can't have unity without truth. You know, basis of truth is, is the only foundation you can build your life on. And this foundation here in this community is built on, uh, it's not really lies, but uh, absence of story. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing I noticed is that you just talked about native population and past tense. I've challenged people many times, show me a printed word that talks about the permanent villages that the native people lived in. Tell me how many tribes were in Napa Valley pre-colonial period. And those vocabulary, that word, those words aren't there. Uh, and Napa, uh, Susco Council was started in 1972, and that was when I was moving here, and that was when Alcatraz, the Native people, were taking over Alcatraz, and I knew they were in Alcatraz, and I knew something, but I didn't know where, you know, because we'd been urbanized, and that's why I say voluntary migrations, because my grandparents, three of my four grandparents, were taken as children from their families of origin and mm -hmm. given into Spanish families in New Mexico to be raised as servants, what we would oh. call now slaves. And so my mothers, my grandmothers, my maternal and paternal grandmother, we don't know their tribes because they were taken as babies. My grandfather was taken as a seven-year-old child. So we were able to uh, trace that lineage in the tribe, and that's where I claim Towa. Towa is my paternal lineage uh, tribe or descendants of. And that's why people will say, do you speak your language? I'm like, no. Hmm. Do California tribes speak their language? No. Because when the Europeans came here, and it wasn't accidental what happened, it was, it was a, especially by the time they got to California, it was a planned military assault. Um, so the work I had been doing to kind of create peace and freedom and, and to have the right to vote and to be represented in our public, um, I had left the country because there was a phrase back in the 60s, they'd say, love it or leave it. And when the Vietnam War stopped, was ended, and we got the right to vote lower to 18, we felt like we had won, and we were done, and war was going to end as a form of um, basis of our economic, our country's economic base, which unfortunately it went the other direction. But they had said, love it or leave it. So I thought, well, I love it, but I don't want to stay here. So I left. I bought a one-way ticket to London in 1971 oh. on my 21st birthday, and I went traveling around the world trying to find another place to live. But on that journey, I had a vision of, of my life's path, and and uh, I thought, okay, well, God, can I just play for a while? Because, you know, being a, lar a large sibling group, I was working all the time. I was working really hard in college. And that was my first time where really I was having a carefree period. I was yeah. just partying. And in Western Europe at that time, it was quite the party. It was Imagine the rolling. someone in her early 20s just enjoying herself. Right. It's <laughs> important idea. to do. Yeah. And then just, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, all that was happening in London and everywhere. So, so I said, you know, I heard, yeah. And I said, just tell me when it's time to go home. So I did have 16 months of traveling through the Middle East and Western Europe. And I did start asking that question in a lot of countries. When I was in Israel and seeing the ruin of Palestinian villages, I said, where, where are these families? Where are these people? And then they could point to where they were. And I went to those places. I went to Jericho. I went to uh, Elat. And uh, unfortunately, I, I went to Israel recently, about four years ago. And those communities are still embedded there in, in a you know, a really horrible lifestyle. And so, but then when I came home, I wanted to come to San Francisco, not Orange County. And then with the FBI, I came to Napa. I had a boyfriend here. And I started asking questions, where are the Native people? And then once I found the tribes, I started working with them. They were in destitute situations uh, in rural areas north 
and west of here. And so I started being asked by elders to do things, and I did. And then we would ask the question, what is the most that we can do to help you? And what we had collectively come to after a few years of doing ceremony and traveling around the state trying to help um, the tribes of California into recovery from what had been done to them. Um, and we realized one of the most important things and the hardest things uh, was to have a place to do ceremony. And so that became the action. I was still just an independent thinker, but then I you know, was mentored that you know, we had to create an organization and we wanted to create a land base that would be safe for indigenous people to do ceremony and to pray. And our elder, Jim Big Bear King, who started Susco back in 1972, he used to say, you know, when he would speak in public, and I, I spoke with him a lot for almost 15 years here in the community, um, and he would say, you know, where's my church? Where's my church? The sky is the roof, the earth is the floor, the fire is the heart. Without these things, I cannot pray. Where is my church? So that really became our vision, the founding vision, when we reorganized Suskel in 1992. Myself as the director is to get a land base and create a spiritual safe spot to do our ceremony and you are creating that space in we the are. northeast okay. portion of the county mm -hmm. the susquehanna right we don't identify it directly because unfortunately it's still dangerous until oh. 1978 it was a felony offense to drum in public to do ceremony to have a fire outside that we would drum or dance around right. and 1992 here in napa was the first powwow it was the first time the indigenous population was coming out in public since the massacres of the 1850s and we had three California dancers. There was over 1,000 people at Napa College in the soccer field. And we had 13 dancers. Um, it was a near riot. A successful In, in what riot. sense a near riot? Like The people were so out of control. They wanted to see the real Indians. And oh. at that time, we didn't have like an arena director. We had an MC, but we didn't have a table. I was doing a powwow. I'd never been to a powwow because I'm one of those jump in the deep end and figure out how to swim. And okay. I've just done that my whole life. So I did that then. I need to do. Uh, but now when we do our powwows, there's an arena director. We mark out the arena. At that time, we just thought, here at the soccer field, and here's the microphone. And mm -hmm. we had one drum and 13 dancers, and all the people came. So it was basically me. But in high school, in my young adult life, I move slow now because I'm an old lady, but back then, they used to go say Toledo, they used to call me Tornado because I could move <laughs> around so fast. So I was literally just physically running a circle around the dance arena to keep people in a circular shape so they weren't just... Uh, like a sheepdog hurting the It was the like flock. a sheepdog. Yeah. It was exactly like <laughs> a sheepdog. And unfortunately, in that first powwow in 1992 at the soccer field in Napa College, Diane Carey was the president, and we were uh, well, we wanted to do the soccer field because that's the area of the valley where the Europeans camped before they began the slaughter of the Indians back in the late 1850s. And so uh, that used to be the rifle range practice on Saturday mornings for the police academy. Mm -hmm. We had gotten a permit to use it, and they were supposed to have an alternate space. But just as we were starting, just as the drums were starting, just as we were starting to come out and, and Native people and traditional regalia, which was really rarely seen. Uh, you see people in Lakota, but not California people. And so here came a, you know, what would it be, a squadron, I guess you'd call it, of armed police academy. And the elders that were there, they never doubted for a minute that they weren't coming to arrest us all. 
And they said, oh, here comes the army. And then I saw them coming, and someone said, Charlie, look. And beginning the tornado, I was 42 at the time. I just went running. I had my clipboard. I had all our permits. And I said, get Diane Carey. And then she came running. And we both met at the same time before the, the police academy, the armed academy, came onto the field. And she, I said, I have all the permits here. And she said, oh, didn't you get the memo? And they said, no. And so they did an about face and marched away. Oh. And then we went on with the powwow. But at the end of the powwow, one of my friends, who's, it was her. That collective memory that I can understand why that would be more than a little concerning seeing that coming towards yeah. you. Yeah, I always yeah. tried to make it safe for people, especially Native people, to be in public. Any kind of venue I bring them into, I really try to uh, what's that word vet vet the mm -hmm. situation mm -hmm. and the environment uh, to make sure it is safe. Even to this day, I still do that. But back then, I was really doing it. And so at the end of the powwow, which was just a half day, but a huge amount of work, and the elder came to me and said, "Oh, the elders here want to meet you." And I thought, "Oh," because then that's like a big deal. And I thought, "Oh no, what do they want to say? Are they mad? I did something mm -hmm. wrong." So I said, "What?" And then we we're walking over to them. She goes, "They want to meet the girl who stopped the army with a piece of paper." <laughs> wow. So that was a real... Wow. And that was 1992. We're not talking ancient history. No, I understand. I'm, I've, I get the picture. So, so that's, that's the kind of stuff that Susco focuses on, having human rights for indigenous people. President Carter in 1978 passed the Native American Religious Freedom Act that I still carry a copy of everywhere. I had to meet with the police and the fire chief and all kinds of people before we could start praying again. Um, and this is 1992, so a lot of times when a law is passed, it takes a long time before it reaches the streets. Hmm. And a lot of the human rights work I've done at the international level with the UN, we things have been created, but we're, we're actually still at the forefront of trying to bring those idealized laws to the streets. And I've been saying the last two years, if you don't have human rights in the place, in the town that you live in, you don't have human rights. And human rights means safety access to education, access to food, access to water, access to clean air, access to economic equity. There's actually 13 precepts of human rights that was defined in Beijing at the fourth annual International Women's Conference, which Sesco Council was at. You were there in 1995. We were there, right? And we actually signed the treaty asking for indigenous people to be represented at the United Nations, which they never had been. And that got accepted, but it didn't get implemented to 2000. And it was 2005 that they actually created permanent committees. For so there is that. I'm part of my ignorance, but there is. Right, okay. right. No. But indigenous people are the highest population globally. And to not have any representation at the UN is kind of like a gross oversight. But now that's become a primary focus is how to protect the human rights of indigenous people and how to establish when human rights are being violated. And so since 19, I think maybe 1996, we've done convenings based on that Beijing conference in the state of California, and that's Women's Intercultural Network, which SESCO is a part of. So we're uh, uh, adjunct to an organization that has consultative status to the UN, which means that we can file human rights complaints. Hmm. So I've been filing human rights complaints on Napa County for uh, 20 years, oh. every five years. And those, uh, one of the indicators, you know, you have five indicators anybody from the outside coming in could measure. At one point, it was getting so dangerous for me here that um, I called Amnesty International for backup. And they came to explore the situation in Napa County. And the report back to me was, it's so dangerous, I need to stop doing what I was doing. And they would continue neutral observation from the outside. Of course, I didn't stop. I just continued to stay focused. I thought, okay, if what I'm doing is so bad, they're going to, you know, going to have to take some serious steps to make me stop. 
but we've been successful, and some of the, the violations are, are being corrected. The biggest one, this cohort that I'm talking about, just getting the truth about what happened here to the Native population and where that population is today. That's one of the base things for Susco Intertribal Council. Even in 1972, when it was founded by Jim Big Bear King, they were digging up the Susco Village, Southern Crossing. They were putting that freeway in, and Jim Big Bear was working at Mare Island. He saw these bones being stirred up. He, he went down there, and he just stood in front of a tractor in 1972. I think it was, I forget the month, but it was the month is there someplace. And he said, you're going to have to kill me if you're going to keep digging up my people. And so that construction was stopped. Governor Brown, in his previous incarnation as Governor Moonbeam, he was really groovy and holistic, um, he stopped the construction and they set up, and that's what Susco did, one of its first really big tasks in California, was it had helped create the Native American Heritage Commission with created um, protocols for a, if you find a village site, and notice I'm using the word village, mm -hmm. not camp. Right. I challenge you to find that word village in print any place in Napa newspapers, unless it's me saying it. The village site of Susco Village was uh, the village that was being dug up. It was Patvin Village, and they stopped it. They brought all the tribes that were had any kind of ability to surface through California and spent three, three years developing protocols, and that's the Native American Heritage Commission in Sacramento. So it oversees any place in California, if you find uh, artifacts or village sites or grinding balls, how, what the process is. If you find human remains, what the process is. That became a national model, which is now called NAGPRA, National Graves and Reparations Act. I forget what all the letters are for. And so now there's a federal law and it's felony offenses to do what was the norm in Napa Valley when I moved here in the early 70s, just to desecrate villages and have no recording of it. And there was a taboo. They'd say, don't talk to anybody about what you see. And we were, you know, in Yontville. I moved to Yontville when I moved here. It was way out in the country. I didn't have a, a live phone line for a long time. So those are all things I could talk about. I, I said we could talk and talk, but... Yes. Um, and so, so what I wanna, we're, oh, if you have one more thought, we are starting to run short on time, so there's a couple things I do want to hit, but if you want to finish that thought, you're about no, to... go ahead. Well, I, I do want to find out a bit about what you do to the community at large, to, to have outreach and education... Uh, I know you have different programs. Uh, there's a calendar of events on your right. website. We do things every week, There are every month. It looks like there's a sewing circle and a drum group, and you have your the annual powwow still goes on. Right, you're and we just about. had our annual the, art auction oh, this so last the, weekend. The art, I'm, and I'm sorry, 23rd. I can't plug it in. It was a few days ago, but no, okay. but but you have you have all these things going on. I, I would hope you would uh, speak a little bit about that. Well, we're always wanting, you know, besides educating about the past, we want to educate people about the present. Mm -hmm. Because going forward, Native people want to be included in, in our opinions and our thoughts included, especially around environmental protection. So those, the activities that we have in our office that we publish on Facebook, those are open to the public. People can come as long as they come respectfully. Unfortunately, some people don't. We have had to have some police contact to get 
unrespectful people out of our environment. Hmm. But um, that's just something, I don't know why the Native community attracts that, but um, we do education outreach. We're in the schools. We do presentations, uh, K through 14. We've done at least, when I was the one going out in the field, I was doing two or three a month, and now Sal Garcia is our office outreach person, and he's doing probably less than that. We'd like to be back up at two or three a month. And then, like this week, Thursday, we're going to be at St. Helena Library talking about California Pomo Regalia. I'll be supporting Sal. He'll be talking in contemporary terms of what Native people are doing now, how we survived the genocides in this region, and and how, how we're doing now. I think I'm doing this radio show today. We're doing the talk at St. Helena. I would have to look at my calendar, but probably two or three other things this week. I and it will be on your Facebook page. And Facebook, Suskel Intertribal and Council. And Suskel is S-U-S-C-O-L, Intertribal Council. Again, the website is suskelcouncil.org. Do you want to speak about the 1,000 Butterflies Project? Right, and that's our land project. We're, we're developing money. Uh, we purchased land in 1998, which uh, has been without debt after four years. We paid it off, and we've been developing it into a what we call Suskel House, and that's to have a safe place to do ceremony and for people to come, kind of like a little small retreat place, a family-type environment. We usually have small groups of people um, doing different um, activities there. That's by invitation only to come there. I think mm. what we've told the county is we would maybe once a year do an open house. So at this point, until somebody's actually living out there, nobody can live out there until we have a permanent house. And that's a long story about where that is. But okay. a thousand butterflies is towards the construction of Suskel House, which we're about halfway through. Okay. We've developed the water. We've got the road in. We've got a beautiful um, foundation set up. We have ceremonial arbor. And it's 23 acres. It's beautiful. It's pretty much untouched. We thought we might be restoring land, but it's the little piece of land that we found is actually wasn't so decimated and we've just mostly preserving it and now enhancing it so people can give donations you can call our office and have an office tour and people can come for land tours we take people out in really small groups because we don't want people going out there um, unescorted just like the land trust we're actually mimicking the land trust they are preserving land for open space and then they'll do annual tours of the public out there and then other than that you know that that open space is there and people that have Native American heritage we're not the government so you don't have to have a card but just that you know well my grandmother was or my whatever then but a lot of people do know what tribe you know sometimes we have people showing up at our office saying I'm here for my money I took my DNA test I got Native American Mm -hmm. so I need my check and I'm like oh yeah what tribe and they don't know and I'm like well you know gotta go to the tribe for your money got it part of the deal um well it's been great talking to you I I'm sorry we're cut short we only had this hour because there's so many fascinating uh, parts of your life to discuss. I mean, everything we've talked about so far, we didn't even get to the fact that you were a midwife during a period when that midwife. was illegal was, here was in California. Law, we didn't talk about how trouble. you were an organic gardener I still, we and still do that. providing to restaurants. You know, you were way ahead of the curve on right, that. I mean, that was in the when. 70s, yeah. It goes on and on. But something I did read that I would like to close with, if I could. Sure. You were asked in uh, one of these articles, I, I read, uh, how you'd like to be remembered. And I thought this is a nice way to close out. You you said, oh. as one blade of grass, if allowed to grow, will drop seeds and more will grow. And that's what we say. That's yeah. how, with our cohorts, that's how we ended. Yeah. You know, because people say, how did you survive? How can you be even talking about these things so uh, kindly and compassionately? Well, thank you for being here. I sure do appreciate it. I know I'll be seeing you around. Yes, thank you, Judd. We thank didn't even so get much. to donuts, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm, donuts. <laughs>
This is Lauren Mole speaking for Judd's Napa Valley Show, a Gil Lamar production. Judd's Napa Valley Show.